Professor Joshua Ralston is a scholar and theologian who's earned four advanced degrees in Christianity and Islam. And since 2015, he's taught Christian-Muslim relations at the University of Edinburgh. His three books look at Sharia law from a Christian perspective, at the impact of global migration on the church, and at Europe's rich religious diversity. Joshua went to Scotland from a teaching post at Union Seminary in Richmond, in part to teach future religious leaders in Europe and the broader Arab world, but in part to advance a dream of bridging divides between Christians and Muslims, each vast, diverse communities who often fundamentally misunderstand one another. And in 2017, with support from the Henry Luce Foundation, he co-founded a fascinating network of faculty and rising leaders from across the Middle East, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, and Western Europe, aimed at learning and mutual encouragement that takes seriously the religious roots of much of our social change, law, and unfolding history. And joining Joshua today is Rim Sarah Alloane, a French legal scholar and commentator who's nearly completed a PhD in comparative law at the University of Toulouse, Capitole in France. Rim writes broadly as a journalist, having published at the Atlantic Council, in Foreign Policy Magazine, at Brookings and elsewhere, and she participated in last year's European Faith Angle Forum. Her scholarship focuses largely on religious freedom, human rights in France, on the balance of civil liberties and religion, and on constitutional law. And just what primary dynamic characterizes this Christian-Muslim network that Joshua co-founded, its interactions, its research grants, its storytelling across differing backgrounds, Take a listen to what he calls humble particularity. I talk a lot about what I call humble particularity as a theological disposition. Actually, entering a space with some humility doesn't mean I'm giving up on my deepest convictions. In fact, it may mean that I have more trust in my deepest convictions because I don't need to defend them. They have an integrity in and of themselves, and I'm willing to bring them to the table to be challenged but also to recognize Muslim jurists in the olden days would often end their fatwas or statements by saying, Allahu alam, essentially, but God knows best. I could be wrong, but God knows best. And it's that kind of disposition that is both, I have my commitments, I want to bring them to the table, I have my reasons for them, but to hold them lightly. And that's one of the things I really try to encourage my students to do. And, and that also translates to how we communicate to different publics. Stay tuned for a rich dialogue between a Muslim legal scholar in France and a Christian theologian in Scotland. Enjoy the conversation. Hi there. It's a pleasure meeting you. So my first question for you would be, why this field of studies? Like what brought you into this extremely complicated, vibrant, dynamic, crazy, tense field of studies? Because it's not an easy one. Sometimes it's extremely misunderstood. Sometimes it's weaponized. And so far you have been, uh, because I've been following your work for quite some time. And I just find it fascinating the way you approach those topics. And my question is why? And how do you manage to navigate through through all of this? What is your journey? Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks to, to both of you for having me on. I think my field of study is something that I stumbled into accidentally. I wasn't going in to do a master's or a PhD on Christian Muslim relations. My background was in philosophy, and I got interested in theology in part because I felt like I could hold together philosophy and theology mostly from the Christian and the Western sort of liberal traditions were the main area of my focus. But especially in my 20s, my first day of work was was at, was 9-11. So Islam became more and more of a feature. And I'd always had sort of interest in Muslims and Islam from, from the undergraduate days. But what I started to notice was a lot of the questions and debates that Christians, secular critics of liberalism, critical theorists were having about questions about justice, modernity, were also questions that I found Muslim thinkers wrestling with. 
Um, so there was an intellectual side, but to be honest, it was mostly lived experiences. While I was doing my PhD at Emory in Atlanta, my wife and I were both working in refugee resettlement in the Atlanta area, me for a part-time job. And I became friends with a lot of the people that had refugee status and had been resettled, most of them from Somalia, Sudan, Rwanda, Burma, places like that. But I became particularly close with a number of guys from Northern Sudan. And I started realizing that the questions that they were asking and wrestling with about religion, about politics, were relevant to the kind of things that I was doing in my PhD program. But I knew how to answer the questions in my PhD program in reference to, say, John Rawls or Thomas Aquinas or Frederick Schleiermacher, theologians and philosophers, or Catherine Tanner. But I didn't know how to articulate them to a Muslim who came from both similar and different perspective. And so it was that that kind of encouraged me to dig a little bit deeper into comparative theology and comparative politics. Wonderful. And so in the aftermath of that, how your work has been received? Because we all know, I'm in academia, you are in academia, you know how it works. Sometimes you can be called out. Sometimes your work is constantly questioned, or you being biased, or you being quote unquote woke, whatever that means. So how your work has been received? Have you ever faced backlash or curiosity or everything at the same time because and i've experienced that personally but especially when it comes to christian and muslim relations usually the cliches are so entrenched in people's mind and including academia weirdly enough mm. or actually we should not really be surprised but did you manage also to challenge academia on those issues to to probably improve the situation or make academics more open-minded to this kind of topic. So in general, how your work has been received so far? Yeah, it's always interesting as an academic to see how your work is received, either your writing, your teaching, dialogue with other colleagues. And as someone who sits in an interdisciplinary space, so between theology, politics, law, and does this comparatively, so I often look mostly at the Arab contexts because I know them better and, and I can read and speak Arabic. So I don't do much on Turkey or, or Iran or other places just because of limitations. You end up with sort of, as you said, entrenched biases and certain assumptions. And I would say in general, there's a ways in which inevitably, if you're talking about these areas, there is a tendency to be put into camps. Either you're, you're pro-Islamist, you're pro-theocracy, or you're too much of an ardent secularist, or you're too Christian, or you're too Muslim. And a lot of my work is trying to show the complexity of ways that Muslims, Christians, and non-believers who theorize about religion and politics actually are engaged with a wide range of debates and arguments. There isn't one Muslim position. There isn't one Muslim position, for instance, in Egypt, or in Lebanon, or in Palestine. There's a variety of approaches. And so trying to hold together that complexity can inevitably mean you're either misunderstood or you're challenged. Interestingly, given what you just asked, there's a, there's a book symposium that just came out about my book in a journal called Islamo-Christiana that the sort of pontifical institute runs. And one of the respondents was a Muslim, and one of the respondents was the Christian, and the Muslim essentially, who is of a more Ibn Tamiya-leaning direction, if so, a little more sympathetic to Islamist trends. He essentially said that he appreciated a lot of the work, but eventually I wasn't critical enough of liberal democracy and I seemed to be asking Muslims to secularize. And the Christian, who's a, a more liberal Christian, was saying, I didn't defend liberal democracy strong enough. And what about Christians in Indonesia? And so you kind of get caught in between these positions. So that's one thing that, that I find my work in teaching, it's really interesting. I teach a class with my colleague Mona Siddiqui on Islamic law that we call From Prayer to Politics. And it's more of an introduction to law students and undergraduates than like uh, Islamic studies, Islamic studies. So it's, it's a little more intro. Um, and what that class has allowed us to do is also 
show a lot of the assumptions that especially our British students, so a lot of English and Scottish students have about secularism, that they aren't even aware of some of the ways that religion and politics here in the UK are intertwined, or socially the way that is in the US, or how secularism can mean so many different things here in Europe, if you're talking about church-state relations in France is very different Mm -hmm. than Germany, which is very different than the United Kingdom. And actually looking at this comparatively, they then start to realize, oh, if there's a variety of ways that Christianity and secularism have interacted in the West, there might also be a variety of ways that Sharia and the state interact in, say, Tunisia versus Indonesia versus Egypt. So that's one thing teaching-wise that I find really productive in, in how our work is is received. And oftentimes, it's our undergraduate students that are much more receptive to these kind of conversations and complexities than sometimes other academics who still kind of operate in the, yeah, but Muslims always do this. Mm-hmm. And you're sort of like, your entire work is about challenging essentialisms, but you still operate with those when it comes to to Islam or Muslims in politics. Can I press into that just a little bit more, Joshua? You know, I'm asked about how your work has been received so far, and and that last part of your answer about maybe you know undergrads running with things a little differently than some of the other academics that are in your in your domain. It it does seem like though you've done some work to cultivate something of a network of of you know Islamic Christian you know, Christian Muslim sort of scholars, not thinking about immigration together or not thinking about, you know, how to care for the environment better together, but 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 looking at law, looking at theology, looking at the religious roots, which is, I think, as Rim was saying earlier, kind of unique in a way. And I and I'm curious if you've if you've learned any lessons about that, about cultivating a network across lines, the people part. You know, what's that line about everybody has their own issues that they're working out when they do their their academic work, you know, if you did a PhD at Harvard, it's really about what you're curious about or what you are puzzled by. And so if somebody's bringing that to bear, maybe they do find critiques, as you say, on on this side of the spectrum or the other. But what have you learned about cultivating a network? Yeah, so when I came to Edinburgh in 2015, a few years in, myself and some of my colleagues, Mona Siddiqui, especially got a grant from the Henry Luce Foundation to start a network for Christian Muslim studies. And we were very intentional about trying to bring together scholars working in the UK, on continental Europe, in the Arab context, Turkey, Indonesia, as well as North America, and to sort of have that international dialogue to show the ways in which, while a number of these intellectual currents may be shared across these regions, they also manifest themselves in particular and diverse ways. So we've had conferences and workshops in Edinburgh, in Beirut, which was uh, simulcasted both in Arabic and in English, not in French. In the States, uh, we've done stuff in West Africa, in Nigeria and Ghana, in Indonesia. And in part, as you said, one of one of my commitments is that while I am deeply interested in the lived actions of interreligious friendships or dialogue, I think that often those can be a workaround to deeper differences or deeper challenges. And so if you say, well, let's not talk about, let's say, Muhammad or Jesus, let's just do justice together. Let's serve. Well, I mean, that's all well and good, and it can cultivate relationships. But oftentimes, different Christians, different Muslims, different Jews, Hindus, secularists of various forms have different conceptions of what justice is. And in fact, how I ended up working on law and the rule of God, my my uh, monograph, was in part that that seemed to be avoiding one of the big issues in Christian Muslim debate, which is the issue of the Sharia. And so it seemed to me important to actually, when we're dealing with interreligious dialogue or comparative theology, to not just talk about sameness, but to wrestle with difference and to wrestle with these kind of challenges. And so part of what we tried to to cultivate is a space that people can actually disagree and disagree well and bring their particularity of their tradition in all its variety into these conversations. And of course, we also are interested in how this does manifest itself in lived reality. So to give you a couple examples um, that I end my book with, one is, you know, the word Sharia 
raises a whole bunch of issues for most non-Muslims, right? It's associated with what Muslims consider hadood punishments in non-Muslims' minds, which again is is a more complicated issue we can talk about. Um, So the idea that there would be sharia in public often freaks people out. But in reality, anytime a Muslim prays, anytime a Muslim washes themselves before prayer, if they choose to eat halal, this is all the sharia. And there are places where the Sharia and public law intersect. And one example, and this is here from Edinburgh, is the ways that this happens around finance. The Islamic tradition, it has a much more complex way of talking about finance. It's not so simple uh, as it's often made out to be. But here in Edinburgh, actually, the Muslim community and the Church of Scotland got together to try to challenge payday lending. And what happened was that the Muslim community, especially it's mostly a Shia community in this context, sort of reminded the Church of Scotland of the Protestant tradition's own critique of usury or excessive interest. And they so they started a small microloan business together in Leith, one of the more deprived areas historically of Edinburgh. They've worked together. So here is actually, ironically, a way that Muslims and Christians, they didn't know they were talking about Sharia, but they actually were. And so some of what I try to do is highlight those cases that are a little more unique. They don't get the, they don't get the headlines as something that's more dramatic, but to say there's a whole bunch of exa- examples of this kind of lived interaction uh, that we can see. But if we're going to go a little bit deeper than that, we need to consider the theological, religious, political roots, as well as the particular context in which they're manifested, which are going to vary from place to place. That's pretty fascinating. And um, and to come back to something you said, uh, something I've had extremely interesting, but also really well welcome is usually when academics work in this kind of field, right? Sharia or like Muslim Christian relations or theology as a whole, but you know, the whole is especially Islam as a whole. I've known many people who work in that field who don't speak the language, have never been to a Muslim majority country have probably do an internship like in Jordan, like a semester in Jordan, and all of a sudden they're all experts interviewed, you know, on television. And which I find extremely problematic because we speak of, I mean, they speak of things that actually they don't understand or, you know, they have quite biased vision or extremely political oriented ones. And what I really appreciate with your work is that you get into it fully. (laughs) You learn the language, you are really into it. And in a world where nuance is so underrated, (laughs) I I think you you brought this intellectual challenge to the statu quo that is sorely needed. So my question is, so you talk about like the effects of, you know, those discussions on communities like uh, the Church of Scotland and Muslims. What is the biggest challenge as an academic you have faced in your field of study? And how did you manage to solve it if you did? If you have an anecdote to uh, share with us, because I I think really like your perspective should be the norm. Right. As academics, I think we have the duty to share knowledge, to bring nuances to the debate and to be heard. And sometimes nuance is a challenge to the statu quo and those who don't want to move the statu quo find it threatening. Right. And that's why, at least I'm talking for France, academia is in danger right now, because every time we challenge things, we are being targeted and, you know, treated of Islamist or pro-Talibans or whatever, like just, so what challenge have you faced that has might impacted your work or not? And how did you manage to solve it? If you have an anecdote to share with us? Yeah, thanks for that. It's, it's a big question. I do think to go back to your earlier point, th- there's a tendency for academics to either want to just have our little tiny fiefdom yeah. that we carve out where we know one thing really, really well, or to act like we can speak about everything broadly. And I think for me, the challenge is to try to kind of sit in between those two. And so if you do comparative work, it inevitably means you have limitations, right? I have my own biases in what I know about the Christian tradition that I come from. I'm Protestant. I know certain Protestant thinkers better than others. I try to read other things. And similarly, when it comes to Islam, I lived in Egypt uh, right after the revolution, uh, and then I lived in Palestine for uh, over two years. So I know Egypt, Palestine, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, 
pretty well, but the Maghreb, northern part of Africa after Egypt, I don't know very well. I don't know the Gulf. And so part of it is being aware of, of your limitations and trying to say, to be aware of that. And I think that's a challenge. I think the challenge for many academics is to speak in public, we have to speak broadly. And too often we're just used to speaking in our one area of field. So then we rely on these broad stereotypes and broad generalizations. And so finding that sort of middle space where we can speak with enough complexity and nuance, but also be aware of our limitations. We don't know everything. It's part of a collective learning. And that kind of feeds in a little bit to some of the challenges I think that my work has faced. Interestingly for me, I write a lot of my more comparative theology work, not necessarily the work on political theology, but the comparative theology is, my in my mind, my primary reader is a Christian theologian or a Christian political theologian. And I've found that the majority of them actually aren't that interested. What do I have to learn from Islam? What do I have to learn from Muslims? We have an, we already have the answers or we already have the tradition. And I've actually had a much better reception of my work amongst Muslims and actually also Catholics than my fellow Protestants. So some of it is to, the challenge is to say, how do you show people who are operating with certain biases about Muslims or Islam that, to speak broadly, Muslims and Muslims as people and Islam as a religion aren't just a challenge to be solved, but living dynamic conversation partners in which one can learn, one can be challenged, one can grow. And so I think that's been one of the things that I've, I've, I've struggled to try to do is to say, you know, why don't we take the Islamic intellectual tradition in all of its variety and diversity as seriously as we do philosophers, legal scholars, you know, why is it that if it's a religion there, we don't have to engage them, but if it's science or philosophy or law, we do. And so one of the ways I've tried to do that is, is to treat Muslim thinkers in the same way. If I'm reading an ancient text, say about there in front of me, Al-Jawaini dies in the 11th century, a very famous Sunni jurist theologian. I'm going to treat him and engage in his writing in the same way that I would a similar figure in the Christian or Western tradition. So that's one way I try to, to sort of model this. I think another way, and this isn't actually about academia, this is a lot of the stuff that I do is also sort of at that border, public, public lectures, public dialogues, public education, is to try to strip away some of the assumptions and amnesia Christians and post-Christians have about our own past. So to give you one concrete example, when I was living in Richmond, Virginia, which of course was the capital of the Confederacy, I was speaking in a public forum about Christian-Muslim relations at a church that had once been attended by Stonewall Jackson, and they also had a portrait of, of John Calvin in, in the church. And one of the people asked me, this is right after Daesh or ISIS, had burned the Jordanian pilot. And they said, you know, I just can't believe like what kind of religion, what kind of religion would ever, you know, burn someone at the stake or treat humans as less than, you know, fully equal. So I'm Presbyterian. There's a portrait of John Calvin who was involved, maybe not himself, but he was involved in the trial of uh, Servetus, who was considered a heretic. And he was authorized to be burned at the stake outside of Geneva. Right, So someone in our own tradition did the very same thing we're condemning someone else for. Similarly, I'm, you know, U.S. Constitution written where uh, certain people are only worth three-fifths. So I'm not to, that isn't to say that the Sharia or is equal to these things, but to say there's a way in which our own ways that we tell our story, I'm speaking here as a Western Christian, hides some of the ways that we have perpetuated the very violence that we're criticizing others for. Or similarly, as you know, Reem, that mm -hmm. you have these traditions. I don't want to get into Tunisian politics, but you know, there's a famous saying from uh, Russian Ghanoushi that secularism arrived on the back of a tank in Tunis and never left, right? It, it was enforced via a certain colonial project. Whether we agree with him or not, the ways that not all but many Muslims experience secularism either was through dictators 
or colonial processes. And so to take those things a little bit more seriously, I think, is important if we're going to have a conversation, whether it's in religion, politics, we still seem to operate as if the only options are either something we call theocracy, whatever that means, or secularism, whatever that means, right? But there are these binaries where that I think I, I, a lot of my work is trying to deconstruct and say, you know, France way better than I, but even somewhere like France, it's a little more complicated than the initial perceptions often have. I know we're on a project with somebody in Strasbourg and they're looking at questions of uh, biomedical ethics in, in hospitals in France and the reliance on Muslim and Jewish ethicists to help hospitals make decisions about life-ending treatment or fertility issues. So it's not like even in a place that many non-French people think as totally secular, Religion isn't already playing a part. Of course it's not, right? So part of part of what I think is important, whether we're a journalist, whether a public figure, whether we're an academic, is it's really easy to operate in binaries, right? The secular versus the religious, the Christian versus the Muslim. But good thinking, good acting involves scratching away at those and complexifying what's going on. Absolutely. And I join you in facing those same challenges myself. Um, you were mentioning France, which is uh, the, the Tunisian example is very interesting at the quote you mentioned, because um, during colonial Algeria, actually, when Algerians ask for laicite to be applied to them so that they would be treated as equal with the settlers, right? So the French and Europeans who were brought to colonize Algeria, the French refused and made them apply Sharia so that they would be like considered as an understatus. So that's very interesting. Like, and today it's like the Muslims cannot abide by secularism rules and laicite and so on and so forth. So as you say, like deconstructing, I think is extremely essential. And that's what I face also when I have to explain certain concepts or when I read on social media, which I think is like a huge maze of like, everything and nothing and a lot of uh, silly things, you know, the things about French laicite that I read by some uh, expert on everything, you know, uh, laicite is anti-religion or like the Muslims cannot live in secular countries or liberal secular countries. And the challenge I face is really to use my academic background, uh, which is law, right? Comparative law, but to make it accessible as well, because it's complicated, right? And I think that one, and I think you explained that uh, very well through uh, the different projects uh, you are leading, how to bring those knowledge, but make them mainstream and accessible to the general audience, which I think is a very difficult thing to do sometimes, because you have to simplify certain concepts, certain notions, certain part of history, but without oversimplifying, because again, nuance, and you cannot deconstruct certain concepts without bringing some background, even if it's technical. And I don't know if you would agree with me, but I think one of the problems we do have in academia is that we stay in our own bubble. We know everything, right? We are doing PhDs, we own PhDs, so of course, like we consider ourselves superior to others. But I think it's also humbling to have to be accessible to the general audience. And that's how you see how an academic reach out a general audience is will the general people understand you? And I think that's a serious topic, you know, at a time of disinformation, fake news. We, at the time when we need more academics like you working on those issues, especially regarding Christian and Muslims relations, how to bring those elements. So my question is, what advice would you give to your students who probably want to work in different fields from law to theology, or probably sociology, social sciences, humanity, whatsoever. What piece of advice would you give them? Because it must be extremely tricky for students as well to, like, what do I do with this knowledge? How do I bring my piece, you know, to the dialogue? How do I make my community interact with others because I think that's the biggest problem. We don't talk to each other. And the very fact that we are here today, people from different faith backgrounds, origins is actually a good step. And we need more of faith angle, I guess. So what advice would you give to your students, whether they're undergrads or PhDs 
you know, regarding like reaching out and using that precious knowledge that we keep a bit too safe, like a bit, like, I think we need to like drop the baby, like, so that everybody can take care of it. So if you had an advice to give to your student, what would it be? If I'm making any sense. Yeah, no, I think it's hard because one of the challenges, how do you articulate complex concepts, practices, histories, in a way that is clear and understandable, but doesn't lose the nuance and complexity. Exactly. And so to give you just a very simple example, um, since uh, my book on law and is about a Christian engagement with Sharia, part of what I try to do in the book is to explain certain basic concepts in the history of Islamic jurisprudence that are nuanced enough that a scholar wouldn't say I'm an idiot, but also are accessible enough to someone who's not an ex expert in Islam. So, for instance, the distinction between Sharia, the way or law or rule of God, and fiqh, the human mm -hmm. understanding, interpretation, and striving, and application of the Sharia in a particular time and place. And now there's a whole bunch of debates about this, how you make these arguments are, are nuanced. But I don't, if I'm trying to explain this difference, I don't need to show off how much I know. I need to explain the difference in a clear way. And so one of the things I try to ex encourage my students to, to do is to say, you know, your job is to do the work that either provides the foundation that is never seen by the general public or even by some of your academic colleagues, but you know that you have the support there. And then when you're going into these conversations to try to trust that This isn't the moment for you to show off how intelligent you are. It's the moment for you to try to articulate as clearly you can in the particular context, the question or challenge or issue that you're facing, and to trust that you've laid that foundation in the work that we've done together in class or your own study. But that's a really hard thing because most academics are always worried about a little snipe from behind by another academic. But having the confidence and, and to try to encourage my students to have the confidence and the freedom to actually risk communicating in their own context. One of the real uh, joys and benefits that I have of being in Edinburgh is that, especially at the PhD level, I have students working on a really range of things. I've learned a great deal coming from a wide range of contexts. Just, you know, I've got a Dutch woman look, looking at Palestinian Christians in, in the West Bank. I have a Dutch Kurdish working on Quran hermeneutics in Turkey. I've got a Nigerian looking at actually early Arab Christians, a Syrian, a Indonesian. So you have like a global community and they all are actually challenging one another to think about why are they doing this PhD and how might it communicate to a broader audience. Um, and so that's Something that we try to do is sort of encourage them to, to teach each other and to teach us how to do that. But I think one of, the, one of the things about academics is we sort of vacillate between hubris and insecurity. Agreed, 100%. And, exactly. And so, so to, li to live in this space is, is to trust. I mean, in my own theological work, this may not apply. I talk a lot about what I call humble particularity as a theological disposition in partly because a lot of times when we're talking about Christians and Muslims, there's a triumphant particularity, right? Like, don't you know that Islam has corrected the errors of Christianity and the Bible has been corrupted? And how could you believe that Jesus is divine or you Muslims, Muhammad is, you know, a fraud or only the Meccan verses are good. The Medinan are bad, or you're always mixing religion and politics, Right a triumphant particularity. We're better than you for these reasons. And too much in interreligious dialogues, there's no particularity. It's like, we're all just spiritual people or we're all looking for justice. And so what I, I think it's important is what is that actually entering a space with some humility doesn't mean I'm giving up on my deepest convictions. In fact, it may mean that I have more trust in my deepest convictions because I don't need to defend them. They're They, they have an integrity in and of themselves, and I'm willing to bring them to the table to be challenged, but also to recognize uh, Muslim jurists in the olden days would often end their fatwas or statements by saying, Allahu alam, 
essentially, but God knows best. I could be wrong, but God knows best. And it's that kind of disposition that is both, I have my commitments, I want to bring them to the table, I have my reasons for them, but to hold them lightly. And that's one of the things I really try to encourage my students to do. And and that also translates to how we communicate to different publics. I can come with my own particular knowledges, gifts, and challenges, but I don't need to be an expert. You know, of course, I'm following what's happening right now in Turkey. I care about this election, but I want to learn from other people who know this much better than I. And if I'm asked it because I happen to be, you know, an academic at Edinburgh, I can point them to people who know this a little bit better. And it's that kind of disposition that I think is really hard to cultivate, but but really becomes important. And that then gives space, especially if we're talking about journalists, public policy, other academics, to say, I don't know, can can we learn together? You know, I might name drop someone like Al-Juwaini or Al-Ghazali or Fakhardin al-Razi or Mullah Sadra in a certain audience. If I'm in an Islamic studies in Islamic philosophy, everyone knows those names. But if I'm another place, they don't. And something similar happens if you name drop political theorists or critical theorists, right? We all have our little languages. And so, so part of it is to say, can we come to these spaces where we don't feel such a need to show off? In my other world, well, not, I, I love cooking and I like watching and learning about food. And one of the things that often when you're like a good dish is restrained. Like it holds back from showing off. It, it doesn't put on that extra thing. And I think that balance of confidence and restraint is something that I try to cultivate my students and hopefully they can cultivate in me. On that topic, a lot of us sometimes, you know, have one or two things we kind of know are true. So we fall back to saying them again and again and again at parties. You yeah, know? Yeah. And if we know one thing about Sharia, and it's worked in the past. We say it again instead of instead of developing a true humble curiosity about it. Is there on that note though? Is there anything about Sharia that American Christians tend to truly misunderstand? I mean, what would you say are some of the misconceptions we sometimes have? Is it fixed? Is it not fixed? Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions that most, not just Christians but non-Muslims have, and and even some Muslims, is that Sharia is primarily about enforcing rules on other people is how I think a lot of Christians or non-Muslims think of it, where I think for the majority of Muslims, and I don't want to speak for all times, it is an attempt to live well, to live rightly, and to seek justice both individually and as a community. And so there's just a totally different way of thinking about it. That isn't to say, I mean, the, the issue of Sharia in the state is extremely complicated extremely problematic in certain places, productive in others. That's one thing. The other is this notion that I think especially for Christians, especially for Christians of a Protestant leaning, but also often for Catholics and Orthodox, there's a tendency to think of the law as fixed, as rigid. And one of the things both in the study of Islam, but also in the study of the law more more generally, is that Law is never as fixed as people think. It's always actually, I talk about it as both stable and supple. It's always being contested. Think about like even US law, we don't need to talk about, right? New court cases are being brought, the laws are being challenged, they're being applied in different ways. And in many ways, the Sharia is a long history of these debates and complexity, right? Should I or should I not fast while I'm traveling? What counts as traveling? Who has the first right to buy the property next door to me? I want to get divorced. How I do that well? Who deals with the child? These are all questions that Sharia addresses, right? And those differ from difference, not just between Sunni and Shia, as well as other Muslim communities. They also differ. I know Sunni Islam the best. They often differ within Sunni Muslims, right? So some will have a certain tradition of, of how they might pray or how long you need to wait to be remarried and others will will disagree. So it's not, I mean, you hear it like there's this thing called Sharia just floating in the sky, ready to, to bring, you know, all the bad things. And that's just not what it is. And oftentimes in the media, 
I'll give you an example to pick on a family member. I won't name them so that they don't dislike me even more than they already do. It's my father-in-law. You know, he was very, he, he was very, he'll never listen to this. He was very worried about Sharia coming to Dallas because he had read in the newspaper that they were setting up Sharia courts outside of Dallas. Well, and he's asking me about it. And well, you look into it and it's just a guy who's helping people get married and get divorced, right? Under Islamic legal traditions, just like a Catholic priest or a Jewish rabbi or anyone else might be doing that they want to be there. They want their marriage to be both recognized by the state and recognized by their religious traditions and different states allow different things. So what had just been a guy trying to help Muslims marry according to their version of Islamic marital and divorce law is turned in the newspaper of the implementation of Sharia in Texas. And when someone reads this in the newspaper, what they have in their mind, to be completely honest, is someone's hand being cut off for stealing or these sorts of things, which again, that in itself is much more nuanced, much more complex. You know, one of the things that we do in our class is there's a list of like 63 conditions in classical Maliki which is one of the schools of Sunni law that have to be met in order to do these punishments. You know, you couldn't steal because you needed the food to eat. You're not guilty if you were drunk while doing it, which is kind of weird because you're not supposed to be drunk, but the idea is you're not in your right mind. So you're not responsible. So there's all of these things that you have this 1400 year complex multivalent legal tradition that then gets boiled down to one or two practices of corporal punishment. And I think that example of Muslims just trying to get married and a non-Muslim hears it as, you know, they're going to come and cut off people's hands. And it's those binaries that I think my work is trying to challenge to say, you know, we need to think a lot more critically and nuanced about this. It's very interesting that you mention Sharia in that context because a, a kind of similar story happened to me, but in academia, actually. So I was giving a lecture in Italy on the different Sharia councils and how, you know, both uh, judicial orders, like the quote-unquote secular one, and like the different councils, like the Jewish have the same as well, like their own Christians also, and a professor of my university, who I won't name, obviously, but he saw what the topic of my, um, you know, talk. And I quote, and, and I will not say the word because it's not <laughs> fitted for the audience, but he's like, why are you even talking about that-ish? And I'm like, what do you mean, you know? And the answer was like, the Islamists are taking over and you don't want to sound like you are pro-Islamist. And I try to explain him saying like things are very nuanced and actually it's far more complicated than that. And I gave also the example of Canada who had to face the same challenge in Ontario, you know, with same like quote unquote Sharia courts. And uh, it caused like a huge outcry and it's a huge part of my dissertation to talk about that. I was told that I couldn't talk about it. Because it was propaganda. And it was law. Again, I'm a legal scholar, but as soon as you touch certain topics, or maybe it's a French uh, thing, and I think it's particular to the, I don't know, we, we have certain way of dealing with things, but I don't think it's just French, to be honest. No. I think like it's, yeah, there you go. And I always find myself to walk on eggs, actually, with, even though it's law, like you just try, you don't take sides, you just try, try to explain how society works, the different uh, legal and social interactions which make society society. Like you said, law is not rigid, like society evolved. And yes, religion is also part of society. The same way atheism is part of society. That's how society works. And it has been extremely challenging to me to, to talk about, to the point that I found myself in some sort of self-censorship situation as well, in certain contexts, at least in France, right? In the United States, I found myself a bit more free to discuss of this topic, but maybe because the dynamic between religion and society is different as well. So, so yeah, the, the, the example you took really spoke to me because I, I had to face that. And just like from an academic with a PhD telling me, don't talk about that ish. Like, and why are you talking about that ish? Like basically you're doing propaganda and like you 
like you don't want to be called an Islamist. I'm yeah. like, what does that even mean? You know, and I couldn't get an answer. Like, what do you mean? It's just law. Yeah. It's boring, plain law. That's, you know, so, um, yeah, the, the example you, you took was uh, extremely like, uh, so, so yeah, which makes me think that it's more global. and Yeah, I mean, I think that, like you said, there's these global dynamics. And I mean, I, I'm also aware that part of my work is also interested in, especially while I, I'm interested in Muslims who live in Christian or post-Christian Europe and North America, but traditions that are still shaped in many ways by Christianity. I also do work with Christians that live in Muslim majority contexts. And so if you're talking about Sharia in Egypt to Coptic Christians or Indonesia, those it's a much different and more nuanced thing. And I've gotten pushback from some of my Egyptian Christian friends for being, oh, I'm too sympathetic to Sharia because you know this is an issue that we're facing about church buildings or discrimination that doesn't let us participate in in football soccer for the Americans when we get further up you know and, and and there's a significant number of Christians in Egypt we don't know the exact number but uh, as I tell my students in Scotland there are more Christians in Egypt than there are people in Scotland <laughs> we don't know exactly but it's at least seven to ten million people right so we're talking about a significant community and so some of i think some of what you have to do is is we have certain presuppositions about what this means in france versus in germany i had a similar thing happen to me in germany where i was lambasted for being an islamist by an old secularist or the states but these are all there's overlapping issues but to 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 can and i understand if you're if you're talking in public or you're writing a public piece or a journalist piece there's a tendency to think about things in the easy black and whites. But I remember, I don't remember the scholars, but they're, they're Lebanese and Tunisian scholars that did a presentation at a conference that we had at AUB in Beirut back in 2019. They were sociologists, and so they did a, a study of the arguments being used on social media about the changes to the inheritance law in Tunisia to make a very complicated thing Clear. There was a debate in Tunisia about uh, inheritance law and trying to make it more equal for women. And there was a perception that this was the secularists versus the Islamists. And their study actually showed that only about 10 to 12 percent of the discourse on social media could be defined as clearly secularist or clearly Islamist, that about 75 percent were operating in both directions. They would use Quranic or Hadith or thick arguments to support the changes so that women would inherit equally. So these are secularists using Islamic rhetoric. And then you had those that would be considered more wanting to keep the status quo where women would receive less, which was part of what was one form of the tradition, using secular liberal arguments. Right. And so what they were saying is actually, and a lot of the people weren't just using the arguments, they inhabited multiple spaces. They were both secular Tunisians and Muslims at the same time, in the same way that I might be both a Christian, a political liberal, an American, but also a Brit now and a European. So we don't need to necessarily always fall back on these binaries. And this was a really interesting case study where the binaries that we operate in isn't actually how people are, are living in real life. And so I think this, this is happening in the States. This is happening in France in Germany in Tunisia and Palestine, you know, even in Saudi, it's not so simple as, as the theocrats versus the secularists. Just quickly, basically the same argument can be made about secularism the same way. For me, it's the same debate with Sharia. When we say secularism now, it's anti-religion. And as a someone who studied the law as a legal scholar, I'm like, uh, no, actually it's not. Like being, I'm a Muslim Sunni, and I'm all for separation of church and state. You know what I mean? But it became the same thing. Like when we say now secularist, it means being anti-religion, and that religion should not be in the public. So I think in the end, like the debate around secularism and Sharia, kind of have some common ground. Yeah. 
as we misunderstand concepts or make them really black and white. So there is this manichaeism somehow that unfortunately influence uh, in a bad way uh, the debate. But I think that if I had to, you know, our conversation was so fascinating and I'm so glad we had it. But two things to remember as academic humility and all I know is I know nothing, right? Yeah. So I think that we should abide by those rules and constantly challenge each other and make sure that the knowledge is accessible and um, your work is definitely sorely needed, especially at the time. So uh, thank you so much, Joshua. Yes, I'd echo that. And not, yo, I mean, a time of Althusius, you talk about in your book, Calvin, you know, religiosity drove the law. It drove the, the study of the law next exploration. And I think part of what we're trying to do conference that RIM participated in, you know, is to, is to pay attention to the religiosity of a culture, of a society, and how that intersects with, you know, its public legal framework. And it's a clue. It's a clue that sometimes gets overlooked by, by us as journalists. And if we pay attention to that a little bit more, sometimes it opens up, you know, new domains. So we'd love to call on you, Joshua, from time to time with our, our little effort over there in Europe. Any closing thought for us? Yeah. I mean, thank you again for this conversation. I, I do think, as you were saying, we may know of some of the ways that Christian thinkers or liberal thinkers interacted with religion and politics, John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, etc. Muslims have been having these debates as well for a very long time. And there's not just one position on the law, religion, politics. And many of them are motivated by theological or religious reasons to embrace something, maybe not like secularism, but a civic state. Um, and I think That's taking true. those thinkers much more seriously, not just as reactions to the West, but as a long tradition of Islamic and Muslim debates can really broaden out our horizons and hopefully allow for us to interact and learn together in a much more coherent and honest fashion. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with leading scholars, theologians, and clerics, both in Europe and the United States. Thanks for listening. <laughs>